please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to grant us this desire not to drift away from what we have heard. Grant us faith and grant us everlasting, enduring faith that has faith in the gospel of Christ until we meet him face to face and enjoy him forever. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the apostle, as we have heard before, he endeavors to keep these believers in Christ, these Jewish believers in Christ, on the straight path, on the narrow path, on the sure path, or on the highway to holiness, the path that they have embarked on by putting faith in Christ. Many of their comrades, many of their countrymen do not believe in this gospel, but these Hebrew Christians, these Hebrew believers have come to put their faith in Christ. And yet they have antagonists, they have enemies, they have persecutors all around them mocking them, ridiculing them, seizing their property, as it says in chapter 10, doing things like that to shake up their faith and to detract them from the straight path, the path of Christ. They want them to embrace something else or somebody else, another way of salvation, another way to heaven instead of Christ and Christ alone. This is why he writes this epistle. He writes this epistle in order to set forward or set before them the theological and to exhort them in the theological so that they not do anything to deter from the faith or distract them from the faith to keep the faith until the very end. This is quite uh, an unusual approach that the apostle uses because if we were to think about our own approach for people who are doubting and people who are wayward, those who have persecutors and afflictions bombarding them, we would think of other ways to help them. But here the apostle wants to set the record straight on the theological and then exhort them. And exhortation includes both encouragement and admonishment. It includes encouraging them in the faith and telling them what benefits they have in Christ and putting forth Christ and the hope that they have in Christ which he does throughout this letter. But also, an exhortation includes warnings, admonishments, warnings about the danger of rejecting this faith, faith and even neglecting this faith. Rejecting the faith, which he will speak of later, but at this point he's going to talk about neglecting the faith. Neglecting is less deliberate and less forthright than rejecting the faith. Both of these are to be avoided, neglecting the faith and rejecting the faith. 
That's what his attention is right here. This passage is the first of the several warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He begins the letter, as we know, by exalting Christ and putting Him above the prophets and putting Him above the angels. And in the first verse, he says, For this reason, we must pay much, close, much closer attention to what we have heard. For this reason. For what reason? Because in the previous chapter, he has just said that Christ is above angels. So whatever Christ says in his incarnation, during his public ministry, whatever Christ taught and whatever Christ demonstrated by his miraculous powers, whatever he said about salvation, whatever he said about the Father in heaven and how to have access to the Father in heaven, whatever he said is of greater authority, greater weight than angels because he is superior to angels. So if he is superior to angels, that's why he begins by saying, for this reason, since he is superior to angels, what comes out of his mouth should get our attention even more than if an angel said it. Not that we should reject what an angel says, but we should give it more attention, give it more weight, give it more solemnity, give it more authority because it's coming directly, personally, through the incarnate Son of God. The Son of God who walked among the people preached the true gospel and He lived the true gospel and manifested and vindicated that He was preaching the true gospel by the miracles that He performed. Because it came in that way, He's saying, we have to pay much closer attention. That's why He says, for this reason. He's going to continue to compare Christ to angels based on the authority of what came out of their mouths or what was written based on what came out of their mouths. He says in verse 1, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Because of Christ's superiority above all creatures, because He is the Creator of all creatures, He is above these angels, because it's coming from Him, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. People hear all kinds of things. People hear all kinds of things from their friends, from their foes, from all kinds of strangers. They hear all kinds of things. They even hear many things within Christian churches. But his point is, we must pay much closer attention to the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ. Whatever is the Word of Christ, it should get our attention. Whatever we hear, we should not take it lightly. Whatever we hear, we should not flippantly say, oh, okay, that sounded good, or that was a nice message, or that passage is interesting or was interesting, or I never thought about that before, and then walk away and forget about it. Walk away and forget about it and have nothing to do with that truth ever again in your life not in, be encountered by that truth and then transformed by that truth. He's saying we must not do that. Instead, the opposite is we must pay much closer attention because we could drift away from it, because it has to do with our salvation. So when we hear anything that is true about the Bible, it should 
make us alert. It should make us sober. It should make us active instead of lazy and, and sluggardly. It should not make us that way. It should make us wake up and gird our minds for action. It should make us go full speed ahead, run into the direction of the truth of God. This is the way we would pay much closer attention. I believe in this passage, he is describing in general terms what we learn about in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, seed, and soils, it encompasses verses 1 to 23. Let's see what Jesus says about those who do not produce fruit, those who hear about salvation, but they don't pay much closer attention to that salvation. Therefore, they are in jeopardy. Matthew 13, when Jesus interprets his own parable, he says this, Matthew 13, 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown by the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good ground, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Jesus has explained that there are four general kinds of reactions to the word of God. The first three reactions or responses do not produce fruit. Only the fourth one produces fruit. We notice the first kind. The first one that fell on the roadside, it says the evil one comes, verse 19, evil one comes, that's Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. It was sown in his heart. That is, it had a temporary residence in his heart, in his internal being. When he heard the word, he might have heard something, he might have contemplated it during a worship service, and then after he left, it was quickly gone from him. He didn't care about it. He didn't pay much closer attention to it. In fact, he drifted away from it because the evil one came and took away that thought, took away that curiosity, took away any kind of interest in what he just heard. In verse 20, verses 20 and 21, the rocky places we see here also that they hear the word, verse 20 says. The man who hears the word, he hears it, immediately receives it with joy. He immediately receives it. He says, that sounds good. That is wonderful. That is what I wanted to hear. That makes me happy. That makes me joyful. That's terrific. That's the reaction he has when he first hears it. Yet, verse 21, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or, pers or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. 
just as soon as he receives it with joy, whenever something happens that intercepts him, that interrupts him, immediately he falls away. He walks away from it. He doesn't care about it. Or he cares more about what has just intercepted him, such as affliction or persecution. Affliction or persecution because of the word that he just heard. He has no firm root in himself. He's not built or rooted in Christ. He is in himself, and he is only temporary. He's not enduring. He's not persevering. He doesn't last until the end. He's only temporary. This, too, is somebody who does not pay much closer attention lest he drift away from it. He doesn't pay much closer attention to what he has heard. In fact, he pays much closer attention to his afflictors and persecutors and immediately falls away. The third example is verse 22. This is the thorny ground. He also, it says, is the man who hears the word. There's always this access to the word in these examples. They have the word, they hear the word. And the worry of the world, worries and anxieties that come with living in the world. The deceitfulness of riches. Riches are tempting. They titillate. They entice. That's what riches do. And here he says, they, this is deceitful. It's deceitful to allow the riches to entrap you and entice you and to draw you away. And in fact, to choke out that word. You hear the word, but you let the deceitfulness of riches or the worry of the world choke it, smother it, and put it to death. That's what happens so that the word is ineffectual. The word that he heard does not bear any fruit in his life. In fact, he is unfruitful. Verse 22. No fruit because he had this temporary ephemeral faith in what he heard. The apostle in Hebrews 2 is describing people like that and he does not want his own readers to be that way. He wants his own readers, his own hearers, to be true believers who endure in the faith until the very end. He was warning them, do not drift away from it. Now we should also bear in mind from Hebrews 2 verse 1, he uses this expression to drift away from it. As well, he says in verse 3, neglect so great a salvation. Here in this warning, he's not talking about those who deliberately are doing this, but people who are caught up into something, who drift away. It happens subtly. It happens quietly. It happens unexpectedly in their life. They drift away, just like a piece of wood would drift away from one side of the bank of the river, perhaps to the other side, or just down the river. It just drifts away. It just goes on quietly and subtly down the river. This is the way he's describing these people who do not think about what is happening and what is going on in their ears. They're not paying much closer attention to it. They just take it in casually and then let it drift away casually. They neglect it. They don't put their full effort, their full mind to it, their full understanding to it. They don't try to comprehend it 
and make sure that their relationship to that truth is a right and good and sound relationship to the truth. They don't try to ensure that. They just neglect it. Yes, I'll give a little bit of my time to religion. I'll give a little bit of my time to the gospel. I'll give a little bit of my time to the Christian faith since I claim to be a Christian. And then I'll just w walk on down the road. I'll mosey on down and I'll go and do something else, something else that makes me happy, something else that uh, gets my attention instead of the gospel. This is either deliberate or neglect neglectful. This, these are the two ways that people walk away from the faith. These are the two ways that people reject or do not believe in the faith. They either do it deliberately or they do it accidentally. They do it either intentionally or they do it in ways that are subtle and unexpected. They just have more important priorities. So they pursue those things instead of the gospel. That is a danger. That is a danger. And the solution to this danger is to consider how important it is, how true it is, how authoritative it is that we hear this gospel and that we believe in what we hear. When people come to hear the gospel, oftentimes they come with a casual attitude. They come thinking, okay, I'll listen, I'll listen for 30 minutes, I'll give some of my time to it, but you know, we don't need to take these kinds of things seriously. There's more important things in life. More important things because everybody's gonna get there somehow, some way, so it doesn't matter. We all know God in some way. God is love, and therefore he would never, by his love, send anybody to hell, or he'll send very few people to hell, it's only some of the most vicious people of history that will go to hell, but not everybody. This is the mentality of people, and this is why they take the things of God and spiritual things in a casual way. That's not the case here. He's saying, lest we drift away from it. We should not drift away because we have to consider what actually is being presented to us. That's why he says in verse 2, Consider what has been presented. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, he's describing the situation in the time of Moses. When Moses delivered the law, he delivered the law with God in a theophany, an appearance of God, and specifically even a Christophany, a, an appearance of Christ on the holy mountain, on Mount Sinai with Moses, and speaking and dialoguing to Moses, delivering the commandments, the Ten Commandments and the law to Moses. And when the Lord appeared, he appeared in the company of 10,000 of his holy ones, according to Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, which is confirmed in Acts 7.53, Stephen says that it was ordained by angels. The law was ordained by angels. By mediation or by accompaniment of 10,000 angels there with the Lord that Moses saw there delivering the law. As well, Paul the Apostle confirms this in Galatians 3.19, 
that it was delivered and uh, ordained through angels. Through these angels, God made it very clear to Moses and the people that he was serious about what he was telling them, about what he was announcing to them, about what Moses was inscripturating. He was telling them by that ominous and glorious presence of 10,000 angels, listen up, pay attention to what I'm saying. And this was so solemn, it says that it was unalterable. Who could or who would presume to make a breach in any of the laws? That's why Moses said, do not turn to the right, do not turn to the left. Do not add to the word I'm giving you and do not take away from the word that I'm giving you. Moses said this when he delivered the word. It was unalterable. No one through human wisdom or man's tradition was allowed to alter the word of God, change a single thing. It was supposed to remain fixed and sure and firm for as long as God desired. And no man should presume through his arrogance to subvert it, to contradict it. And in fact, if anyone did contradict it, either by man's tradition, the teaching of a man's tradition and the practice of a man's tradition that contradicts the word of God, he says, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. Every transgression and every disobedience received a just recompense. If somebody stole, then he was supposed to pay back what uh, twofold or fourfold or even fivefold, depending on what it was that he stole. He was supposed to have a just recompense, the thief was, for what he transgressed in the law of Moses. If he committed murder, then the penalty was the death penalty. And, or as we read, if he disobeyed his parents, uh, unrepentantly disobeyed, stubbornly disobeyed his parents, then he deserved to be put to death after going through a trial. This is the kind of thing that was in the law of Moses. Whatever the, penalty, whatever the transgression, a suitable and righteous and just penalty corresponded to that transgression. He says this is the way it was for things under the law of Moses, in the law of Moses. And that's serious business. That's something that should get everybody's attention. That when we transgress the law of Moses, there will be a just penalty, a just recompense. So, in comparison, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we take this great salvation casually, how are we going to escape that? We cannot casually, he's implying and saying, we cannot casually disobey the law of Moses because if we casually disobey the law of Moses, then there's going to be a just recompense. There will be a penalty if we transgress the law. Then how is it possible for us to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a salvation. How is it possible for sinful man to enter into the presence of a holy and righteous God? Why should a holy and righteous God grant us permission to enter His presence forever, to escape His wrath, to escape His righteous judgment? How is it possible for us to be redeemed from that, 
to escape the penalty that we deserve. How is it possible? It's only possible because of the great salvation that He's provided in His one and only Son. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world and we reject the Son of God, the Savior of the world, how can we be saved? We cannot be saved through Islam. We cannot be saved through Hinduism or Buddhism or atheism or anything else. There is no salvation in any other philosophy, any other religion, any other man, any other idea, invention, ideology, nothing. Salvation is only in Christ. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 Jesus said himself, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The only way to know God is to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. So if this is the only means of salvation and the only way of our redemption, lest we go to hell, how can anybody think that he can escape the means that God has provided and be just fine with God? If God has provided the only means, He has announced it, clearly announced the only means, clearly provided the only means of our salvation, how can anybody treat that casually, neglect that only means of salvation, the great salvation, to be able to enjoy the Lord God of heaven and earth forever and ever, where we have perfection, where we have peace, where we have life, where we have joy, where we have His presence and glory forever and ever. Who can reject that? Who can neglect that even? And think that He can escape. If God has said, this is the way, there is no escape for those who neglect this one and only way of salvation. Furthermore, verse 3 says, After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Here he is emphasizing the fact that it was the Lord Jesus when he was on the earth, during his years of ministry on the earth, during his incarnation, that he went about the people and numerous people, tens of thousands of people saw him. They touched him. They heard him. They saw his miracles. They benefited from his miracles. It was the Lord from heaven who came. He is from above. We are from below. It says in John chapter 3, He is from above and we are from below. John chapter 3. So if He is from above, from heaven, sent by the Father, how can anybody reject what He says? Compared to angels. Yes, angels are ominous. Angels are powerful. Angels deserve our attention. They make us terrified and fearful, and we pay attention. But the Son of God? The Son of God is superior to angels. He came into the world. We should pay attention to what He says, because it's on more authority. It's on direct authority. It's not the Son of God speaking through angels to tell us, which should be good enough, but it is the Son of God Himself directly speaking and telling us what he thinks about life and death, what he thinks about heaven and hell, what he thinks about sin and righteousness. It's the Lord himself. 
not only was it the Lord himself, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Confirmed to us by those who heard. There we have three generations, three generations of believers. That is, the Lord spoke to those who heard, and those who heard confirmed it to the apostles, and, or to these, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews, spoke to him. Those who heard it from the Christ confirmed it to the author of the book of Hebrews. He says, confirmed to us by those who heard. So we have the Lord himself, we have his eyewitnesses conveying to others eyewitness testimony about what the Lord Jesus said. That's why we should believe it. It was the apostles who preached as eyewitnesses to their hearers and said, we 12, we have heard, we saw. When Jesus rose from the dead during the period of 40 days when he presented himself to many people with many infallible proofs, many convincing proofs, as it says in Acts chapter 1, when he appeared to them, at one point he appeared to more than 500 brethren, it says, at one point. At one time he appeared to more than 500 brethren, according to Acts, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. All of these people were eyewitnesses of what happened in the first century. This did not happen in a dark corner. It did not happen secretly. It did not happen maliciously. There was no conspiracy. Everything was open and plain for many eyes to see, tens of thousands of eyes to see what Jesus did during his ministry and after when he rose from the dead. Many, many people saw it. Many, many people testified to it. It was not a religious concoction. It was not deception. It was nothing like that. It was open and plain eyewitness testimony by numerous people. This is the confirmation. And this is what our faith is built on. It's not built on somebody who cl claims, like Joseph Smith, that he went into the wilderness and God spoke to him. And actually there are several accounts, contradictory accounts as to who appeared to him in the wilderness. He supposedly went out into the wilderness. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, the so-called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He goes out into the wilderness because he cannot decide which denomination to choose because the Baptists are saying they are right, the Methodists are saying they are right, and he doesn't know who to believe. So he says, this is the, the way the story goes, he goes into the wilderness and he prays and suddenly an angel appears, uh, the Son of God appears, God the Father appears, there are contradictory accounts as to who appeared. Whatever, he did it in a solitary place. And he started his religion based on solitary, single testimony information, not in the presence of many witnesses. The same thing with Islam and Muhammad. Muhammad also says that he was out meditating, the angel Gabriel appears to him and delivers to him in written form the complete Quran. That's what he claims. Who else was there? Nobody else was there. Nobody else saw it. No. False religions, these are just two examples. Many, many false religions claim these things 
in dark and secret and solitary places without eyewitness testimony to the deliverance of the Word of God from heaven. But that's not what happened to Moses. That's not what happened to Jesus. That's not what happened in the Bible. The Bible is very plain and open and honest, transparent, with plenty of eyewitness testimony of those who are contemporaries, and those contemporaries wrote down what we have in the Word of God. That's what we have. Our faith is sure. So we should believe it because it's confirmed to us by those who heard. Confirmed to us by those who heard. Not only that, verse 4, God also bearing witness with them. God is bearing witness. God is testifying with them. It's not as though just their word was to be taken straight because their word was confirmed by the miracles that accompanied their word. Their word was from God, but it was manifested to the people to give them assurance that they should pay attention to what is being said by the miracles that the prophets and the apostles performed among the people. That confirmed it. The miracles confirmed the legitimacy of the word. The word interpreted the miracles. There is a correspondence and there is a harmony between the word of God and the wonders of God. The word of God and the wonders of God go hand in hand. There should be no contradiction between what God says and what God does. What God does harmonizes with what he says. His word and his wonders go hand in hand. We should note that that's not the way it happens with people today and throughout history. Throughout history, there is no correspondence. In fact, they say they are Christians, but their miracles are so-called miracles, and the teaching accompanied by those miracles contradict the word of God. They say that God told them thus and so, and then they perform some miracle or supposed miracle, and they fool people, and then whatever they teach based on that miracle contradicts the Bible. When they do that, we know it's a sham. We, when they do that, we know it's a scam. We know when they do that, it has no correspondence and truth to the Bible. In fact, they are the false teachers that the Bible warns us to avoid. The false teachers who do those things, the Bible itself tells us, don't listen to them. Listen to the Word of God and to the testimony of God when He bears witness in His Word accompanied by true miracles, by eyewitnesses who confirm and interpret the meaning of those miracles based on the Word of God without any contradiction to the Word of God. That's the kind of faith we should have. He describes these miracles in three ways, verse 4. He calls them signs, wonders, and by various miracles. Signs, wonders, and various miracles, and as well, by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Signs. A sign signifies. When God performs some miraculous deed, some powerful deed, some mighty deed, Sometimes they are called signs because a sign signifies something. There is a meaning to it. Why was something done? What is the corresponding interpretation of it? What is the word of God on that sign? What is it, therefore, that we should believe? Where should our confidence reside? On what word or interpretation of God's word should our faith rest? That's the meaning of a sign, to believe 
in the object of our faith, that is, in the Word of Christ. In the book of John, in the book of John, the miracles that the Apostle John records are typically called signs. Signs because the sign signifies something about Christ, something that we should believe about Christ. That's why he calls them signs. They're also called wonders. Notice, they're called wonders. The reason is, it is extraordinary. It's out of the ordinary. It is meant to wake us up. It's meant to stun us. It's meant to put us in awe, to strike awe in us. That's why they're called wonders. When we go day by day, carry on with our life, we see regular occurrences of things. We see regular occurrences. So the words or the, the miraculous deeds of God are called wonders because they are intended to wake us up. They're intended to prick us, to goad us, to arouse our curiosity so that we not think of what God is saying in casual terms, in regular terms. Oh, that's just another person just spouting off. I don't need to pay attention. You know, we should not have that response when the wonders of God are performed. And that's why God performed wonders among the people, so that it would wake them up, it would arouse them to see and consider what is being said by God by this wonder. And also, they're called various miracles. A miracle is a work of power, a work of the mighty power of God, because through that power of God, God demonstrates that He is supernatural. He's not natural. He created the natural, and we are natural, but He is supernatural. He is beyond the capabilities that we have. He is infinitely beyond the capabilities we have. In wisdom, His wisdom or His understanding is inscrutable, Isaiah says. In His power, He has the power to reverse the, the degradation, the degeneration, the evil and sin of the world. He has the power to overcome it and reverse it and make it a great salvation, as he says here. He has this power to do so. That's why they are called various miracles. To have our faith, put our faith and confidence in the power of God that's able to overcome the predicament and the situation that we ex experience every day in our life. His power to overcome. And the gospel is that main power. That's why Paul the Apostle calls it that in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God. That is when we experience that ultimate miracle, the best miracle that benefits us, when the gospel saves us from our sins. But in addition to that, many other miracles, works of power happen to convince the eyewitnesses that they should believe in the word they heard. And also he calls God's testimony towards us gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts of the Holy Spirit. We could do a study of the gifts of the Spirit in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 in those chapters of the Bible that the Holy Spirit has gifted the church, the people of God, with various abilities that they would not have in their abilities, in their, uh, in their uh, repertoire of abilities to do this or that 
for the sake of God and for the glory of God, were it not for the Holy Spirit. There are many gifts that the Holy Spirit endows His people, the church, with these gifts in order for us to use them for the glory of God. We don't see these gifts used in the right way unless we see them used according to the Word of God and when they bring glory to God and benefit the people of God according to the Scriptures, then we know that these are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they are assurances. They are testimonies that we are believing in the true gospel. When we see the gifts of the Holy Spirit manifested around us. And all of these happen according to His own will. To His own will. According either to God's will or the will of the Holy Spirit. We do know that the Holy Spirit has a will according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 and 12 and 13. We do know that there the Holy Spirit has a will. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. He has a will. So whether it's the will of the Spirit or the will of God the Father, regardless, when these things happen, we note they happen as testimonies to buttress and verify the Word of God as true because God wills it so, because God wants it so. He wants to confirm to us that we should believe in this salvation. We should believe in this Word. It does not happen, in other words, according to the will of man. It's not for the will of man or the free will or good will of man to conjure up, to, to be arduous and work hard in this or that manner to convince God to do something. That's not the way it happens. When these things happen, they happen according to the will of God. So we should seek for the will of God. And the will of God is always manifested in the Word of God. That's where we can have full assurance that we know what God thinks. Therefore, if the Lord Jesus has spoken, and if God has vindicated the Lord Jesus by all of the mighty deeds that He performed and His apostles performed, and if the Lord Jesus is superior to angels, and if the salvation that Christ presents has greater consequences, greater benefits and consequences. Benefits, it's eternal salvation. Consequences, there is eternal condemnation. Who would presume, who would dare among us to neglect this great salvation and to drift away from it? Let's not be that way, but let us be those who pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Let's all be those who pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Let's rejoice in it, revel in it, let's bask in the truth of God because it has to do with our great salvation in Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.